Well, good morning, River City. It is good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. We would love to get to know you. We'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. And like Andy was saying, small groups is really the best way to do that. And so uh, we're starting a brand new study in Luke. We'd love to invite you. It's a great time to come check one out. Uh, We'd love to help you get plugged in, grow in your faith, help others grow as well. So uh, we'd also love to invite you into a new series. We're starting here on Sunday mornings as we begin a new year together called Money Matters. And uh, what we're going to do for the next four weeks is we're going to be taking a look at what God's Word has to say about money and uh, why our relationship with money to money seems to matter so much to God. Now, before we go any further, before we dive in, I just want to clarify, there's a few reasons why we're not doing this series, right? Number one, uh, we're not doing this series because like the church's budget is in bad shape and we like dramatically need to increase giving or something like that. Like, we're fine. End of the year in the black. Like, everything's going fine, right? Things are good, right? Or we're not doing it because, like, we have, like, this secret hidden agenda or later this year we're going to launch, like, a building campaign and we're, like, prepping you to give towards that or something. We just renewed the lease on this place, right? Like, we're not going anywhere. We're not trying to pump you for money by spending a few weeks talking about money, right? Additionally, um, it's not like uh, there's like some pervasive like church-wide financial problems that we're like we got to do an intervention thing. Like there's there's just some serious issues we got to deal with here, right? Like I'm sure in a room this size, there are some of you who are in a really healthy spot financially. There's some of you who are probably not. And if there's ways that we can serve you and help with that, we'd love to do that. But but your current financial status is not the reason why we're doing this series, right? And so the question then you have to ask is like. So why are? Like, why are we spending the next four weeks talking about money together? Well, normally at River City, we just pick a book of the Bible and work our way through it verse by verse. And like we did this fall, we walked through the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, or 1st and 2nd Thessalonians this fall. And like we're going to do right after this series, we're going to be in the book of Titus after these couple of weeks on money. And we do that primarily because we want our time together primarily to be shaped by the flow of God's word rather than like what I think about it or what I want to talk about, right? Um, But sometimes it's important for us to study various topics or themes that we see across the scope of Scripture because studying them in a thematic way gives us a more holistic picture about what God's Word as a whole has to say about some of those ideas. And what becomes really clear as you read through the Bible is that God has a lot to say about money. There are roughly 2,000 verses across the Bible that talk about money and possessions and our relationship with that stuff. And in case you weren't sure, yes, that is a lot. For comparison, there's only like 500 or so verses on the topic of prayer in the whole Bible, right? And so, so God talks about money a lot in his word, right? You may have, additionally, you may have heard it said that Jesus talked about money more than anything else. Spoiler alert, actually totally untrue. He, he didn't talk about money more than anything else. Uh, the topics of hell, salvation, and, um, and the kingdom of God take the first couple of spots, right? But while he didn't talk about it the most... Uh, he certainly did not minor on it, right? All four of the gospel writers highlight the repeated and emphasized ways that Jesus addresses the topic of money. So it wasn't something that he didn't have anything to say about by any stretch of the imagination, right? And so the sheer volume of content in the Bible on money alone should clue us into the fact that it's an area of our lives that God really cares a lot about. He really has something important he wants us to understand about it. And yet the truth is that while God talks about money a lot, you and I I tend not to, 
We tend not to, right? Even though all of us spend a huge portion of our lives earning it, saving it, spending it, investing in it, planning around it, it is just straight up not something we like talking about. There was a Reuters article from a few years back that called money the last taboo. And it, it basically highlighted how almost half of Americans said that personal finances were the single hardest thing for them to talk about it. They would rather talk about death and their sex lives than money, right? And so people do not like talking about money. It's not on the list of things we want to spend a lot of time doing. But it's not just that as a society we don't talk about it that much. It's honestly, as a church, we don't talk about it that much. And it's not something we've intentionally tried to avoid here at River City. We've every year, a lot of years we've offered a financial planning and budgeting with in light of the gospel class that we do. But in preparation for this series, I look back and I realize that when it comes to Sunday mornings, in the last seven plus years since we started this church, there's only a handful of sermons where we've talked about money in any significant amount at all. And literally two in seven years where the topic of money was the main idea of the sermon, right? And so while it could be argued that a lot of churches or plenty of churches talk about money too much, it could pretty easily be argued we do not talk about it enough, right? And so while we're not going to start overreacting and just like, wow, we're going to do a series every three weeks on money, right? Because we got to make sure we're talking about it all the time. Um, it is certainly wise and good for us. To spend some time, is, to spend a few weeks, especially during a time of year when many of us are thinking about our own budgets and our own finances as we set up New Year's together, to ask the questions, to consider what God has to say about an area of our lives that He so clearly cares about. And when, as we begin our study this morning, what, what I want to simply do, the goal of our time to go, I, I want to simply try to answer the question, why? Why does God care about money? Why does he seem to care so much about how we view it, how we use it? Why is this an area of our lives that seems so important to him? And what we're going to see as we study this morning is that the reason has everything to do with love. It has everything to do with love. You see, God isn't anti-money. He doesn't hate it. He's not afraid of it. God loves you, and he wants you to love him and what God understands better than any of us do is the immense power that money has to either deepen our love for him or to, or to divert it away from him. See, God understands the immense power that money has to either deepen our love for him or to divert it away from him. And so if we want to be a people who both enjoy and who emanate God's love, then we are going to need to understand the power that money has. We're going to need to understand the reason why it is so powerful. And we're going to need to understand, thirdly, how to harness the power of money so that we use it to deepen our love rather than divert it away from the Lord. And so with that in mind, let's pray. This morning we'll dive into our time in God's Word together. See why money really matters so much to Him. God, we're so grateful for you and for our time together in your word this morning. And God, as we come to talk about an issue that really none of us really likes talking about, God, we pray that you might by your spirit cause uh, the good news of your word and the truth that is found there uh, to shape us in profound ways. That you would cause us to be a people who view and use money to deepen our love for you rather than letting it be something that diverts it away from you. And so, God, I can't make that happen. The greatest sermon ever could not make that happen, but you can. And so as we study your word, would you graciously, by your spirit, would you work in our hearts so that we might love you the most 
and that we might use our money for your good and for our good and for your glory. We pray all these things. Amen. Well, we're going to be uh, touching on a number of passages this morning, but I want to kind of anchor our time together in Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And in verses 19 through 24, Jesus talks about money in this this little section. And it reads this way in verse 19. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? For no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. All right, so Jesus' words here in Matthew 6, they, they highlight how the reason why God cares so much about the way that we view and use money is because he understands the immense power that money has. Right At the end of the passage in verse 24, we see Jesus personifying money as this rival to God. He, it's this master, this king who is competing with God for our love and our affections and our devotion. And, and what Jesus makes clear is that you cannot love both. You can't serve both. You can't be devoted to both, right? The throne of your life, it is not like one of those like extra wide chairs at the doctor's office that you sit down and you're like, is this a one person or a two person chair? Like, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm sure my kid thinks it's a two person chair, but like, what's going on with this, right? No, the throne of your life, it is very clearly, very obviously a one seat operation. There is room for one thing. There is room for one person on the throne of your life. And either you will love God and be devoted to him, or you will love money and be devoted to it, and you will increasingly grow to despise the other. See, in the beginning of the passage, Jesus highlights how you can tell which one you really love and serve, which one you're really devoted to, by the way that you use your money. Verse 21, he says this way, where your treasure is, There your heart is also. Where you put your treasure, what you do with your money and your possessions, how you spend it, how you save it, how you invest it, how you use it, it reveals with a striking level of clarity the things like who or what your heart really loves and really serves. But what I want to do is, let me just clarify that for a moment because what Jesus isn't saying is like just what you spend your money on is the thing that tells you what you really love the most. You see, I think there's a little nuance there. Because I think it's not just about what's in your budget, right? What you spend your money on. I think it's also how easily you spend it that shows where your heart is really at. See, there are things that we all spend money on that we don't even think twice about. It just kind of flies out of our pockets, right? And I'm not talking about gas and groceries. I'm talking about the discretionary stuff, right? What are the things that you are eager to spend on? What are the things that you're eager to use your money for or to save your money for? What are the things that you spend it on or save it on begrudgingly? What are the things that are in your budget? Because you're like, this, this, like, I know it's right for this to be here. 
Or it's good for me if this is here, but I do not like putting it here. I don't like spending on this. I have to choose to do it intentionally. See, the answers to those questions, they tell you a lot about which God you really love and serve. If generosity to God, to his kingdom work, to the good of others, is what your heart is eager to spend on, not what you spend all of your money on, but if, it, if that's the thing that your heart is just willing and eager to devote your resources to, right? it reveals a kind of love and devotion to the Lord. But if yourself and your pleasures and your own good are what your heart is most eager and most willing to splurge on, what it shows you is that money it either has or is trying real hard to get its greedy cheeks on the throne of your life, right? Remember, the throne of your life is a single seat position. See, but there's one, really, one more really important thing that you need to see Jesus telling us in this passage. You see, Jesus isn't just saying that how you use your money reveals the God that you really love and serve. He says, how you view and use your money, it actually has the power to deepen or to divert the love you have for whatever God you serve. See, and that's the real reason why God cares so much about how we use it. In verses 19 through 20, Jesus contrasts these two opposing ways to use money and possessions. He says you can either store up your treasure on earth or you can store it up in heaven. You can, he says you can either use your money for self-focused here and now kinds of things or you can use it for God-focused, eternally-minded kinds of reasons. And he warns us against the former and he encourages us towards the latter because, verse 21, again, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also... Right? In other words, what he's saying is not just that your heart is a your money, your budget is a diagnostic tool. He's saying your heart follows your money. Where you put it, what you do with it, where you invest it, it has a direct string to what you love. A direct string, direct line to your heart. I don't know, but you have ever, have you ever invested in a stock before, like just one stock in one company? Right? Have you ever done that before? I remember in college, I got real excited about investing some money in Apple. I sold it all. I don't even know where it went. It didn't turn into anything, right? But I didn't care at all about the stock market, literally none at all before that. And then I bought like $3 worth of Apple stock, you know, and then I was like checking every day to see how that stock was going and if it was going up or if it was going down, and I was reading all kinds of stuff about it. Why? See, because where you put your money, what you invested in, what you do with it, it has a direct string, direct line to your heart and the things that you love. See, the same is true on a spiritual level. Whatever you devote your financial resources to will increasingly have sway in your heart and life. It will increasingly have sway in your heart and life. The more you use your money for self-centered, here and now focused things, the more you will become, you will come to love and to be devoted to that stuff. The more control it will have over you. But the more you devote your resources to God-focused, eternally-minded things, the more your love for him will deepen and grow till you see how powerful money is. See, but it, it's not just the power of money that we have to see. It's not just the reality of its power, it's the source of its power. Why is it so powerful? 
Why, is it, why does it have such sway in our lives? See, Jesus portrays money at the end of the passage as this rival to God, competing with him for our love and devotion. But the truth is, is that money isn't the real false God that's vying for our allegiance. It's more like a puppet. It's more like a middle manager kind of, kind of false God. You see, money is never an end. It's always a means. See, the reason why money is so universally powerful is because it, it is the means to getting or keeping the things that we really love the most. At River City, we talk a lot about the idea of surface idols and source idols. These false gods that, are, that, are, that tempt our hearts to captivate and control our desires. And money is a great example of a surface idol, but there is always, you need hear, I need you to hear me on this, there is always something underneath our love for money. There is always something underneath it. See, the reason why we are tempted to love money is because it is the universal means of getting the real false God that our hearts are tempted to love and be devoted to. For example, the gospel writers, they repeatedly point out how the religious leaders of Jesus' day, right, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they express verbatim how those, those leaders, they loved money. And yet what you find as you continue to read the gospels, the gospel accounts, and what becomes clear is that what was underneath their love for money was actually the idol of approval. They wanted people to see and respect and, and admire them. Matthew chapter 23, verses 5 through 7, uh, speak, Jesus warns them this way. He says, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long, right? They, fare, they wear fancy clothes and accessories to show off how wise and experienced they are. They love the place of honor at banquets and most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. John sums it up in verse 12 of his gospel. He says, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. You see, money, that was just a means for them getting the thing their heart was really after. For them, it was approval. It was the praise and the admiration, the respect of people. And in response, what's become so obvious is that they were characterized by being deeply selfish and greedy. Jesus confronts these leaders in another passage and he condemns them for finding kind of sneaky backdoor ways to get around God's commands to use your resources to care for the needy and the people in your family that really needed it and instead to kind of find backdoor ways to give that to the, to the church so that these religious leaders could enrich themselves. See, their hearts are real messed up. But approval isn't the only source idol underneath that surface idol of money. See, for others of us, it's the idol of power. The thing that our hearts really love and desire most is to have authority and influence over other people and situations. And when power is your source idol, you are tempted to view having and spending and giving or withholding money. Always it's the way, it's the means to gain or exert influence and power over other people and situations. And you might appear to be somebody who is really generous, but there are always strings attached to your generosity. Or maybe you just appear real stingy because withholding money, that's the way you punish people who don't do what you want them to do. For others of us, it's the idol of control. 
thing our heart really loves and desires most is autonomy and mastery and certainty regarding our lives and our own futures. And people who worship the idol of control, they tend to view money as the means to safety and security and certainty in their lives. And they're usually people who are really great savers. Their budgets are impeccable. Every cent is accounted for. They tend to live very modestly. They're not living lavish lives, right? Because all their money is saved or invested so that they can feel completely safe and secure. They look at the chaos in the world and then they take a glance at their bank account and they say, everything's fine. I have money. I'm okay. No matter what happens out there, I'll be fine. See, for others, the idol their devoted heart is to is to the false god of comfort. The thing your heart loves and desires most is freedom and pleasure and escape from stress and responsibility. And when comfort is on the throne of your life, when it's the thing that's driving your heart's desires, you tend to use money as the means to insulate or distract yourself from stress, demands, and just boredom. Right? Money's the thing that lets you have fun. It's the thing that frees you up to just have a good life. So use it in fun ways. Right? The whole reason it's there, make it, earn it, spend it. Only live once. And you might be rich and lazy, or you might just be a workaholic who's trying desperately to retire at 40. And the same thing, comfort can be the same idol at the source of both of those things. You're trying to work real hard now so you can spend the rest of your life just doing whatever the crap you want to. And both of those reveal a heart that loves something else besides God. You tend, when you love comfort, you tend to spend your money on things that amuse you, things that distract you. Things that keep you busy just for a little while. You spend a little, you're on to the next thing. You see, money is the means to fulfilling and serving all four of these deeper source idols of the heart. And the problem is not only that they're all false gods, but that they don't ever actually give you the thing your heart is after. They don't ever deliver on the promises. There is no amount of money that can get or maintain the kind of authority and influence over people and situations that your heart longs for. There is no number. There isn't a number in your savings or your investment account that's going to alleviate all of your fears and all your uncertainty. You have some, you're always going to need a little more. Solomon, the richest human in the history of existence, you know what he said? He said, the more things you have, the more you have to worry about losing. I guarantee you, he knows better than any of us what that feels like. The allure of the most lavish possessions, the enjoyment of the grandest experiences, it always fades. It always fails you. It always lets you down. They never last. They don't really satisfy. And when money is the means for getting approval from people, just spoiler alert, you can't ever get the thing your heart's after. People want approval because they're looking for love. They're looking for acceptance. Just, you, I, just, I love you, so I got to tell you this. Real love is never transactional. And if money is the means for approval, the only thing you can ever get is a transactional kind of love. It never works. It cannot give you the thing your heart is after. 
Besides all that, when we use money to love and serve these false gods, it not only destroys our love and our relationship with the real God, it destroys, it ruins our relationships with people. We tend to look down on people who have more money or less money than we do, thinking we're holier or more righteous or less righteous than somebody else based on how much they have, right? Or we look up or down on people who use money in ways that we uh, use or misuse money in ways that we approve of or don't approve of. And what it does is it just drives wedges full of pride and arrogance and self-centeredness between us. And in the end, we just are left unfulfilled and lonely. So the question you got to ask then is, what do you do with money? You can't avoid it altogether. It is a necessity of life, right? Besides the fact that God's Word never tells you to avoid it altogether, right? So what do you do with it? Well, I think the real question that we need to be asking is, how do you harness the power of money? How do you harness the power of money to deepen your love for God? rather than let it divert your love for him to something else. You can't get away from money's power, so you have to figure out how to harness it. How do you do that? I'll tell you right now, it's not by, like, getting rid of it, that doesn't make it possible, right? And even if it was, that doesn't solve the problem of what's going on in your heart, which is why poverty theology, right, the idea that being poor and having nothing is really the most glorifying, honoring thing to God, that's totally bunk and garbage, Right? And Jesus clearly condemns the opposite. He clearly condemns storing up stuff for yourself so you never have to worry about it ever again, right? Which is why prosperity theology, right? This idea that like money is just this universal sign of blessing from God, that that's total garbage as well, right? Luke 12, Jesus literally calls a guy who takes this kind of prosperity approach to his money, he literally calls him a fool. So poverty theology and prosperity theology are both crap, what we need instead is gospel theology. See, the way you harness the power of Im- the immense power of money isn't by just rejecting it altogether as evil. And it's not just by embracing and accepting it wholesale as some kind of blessing. But it's instead by recognizing its immense power and making its power a servant to your love for the Lord rather than a master that diverts it away. How do you do that? Well, I want to encourage you with three practical things you can do this morning. Three ways to make money a servant of your love for the Lord. Right? Three ways to foster that, that attitude in your heart. And the first is simply this. Practice gratitude regularly. Practice gratitude regularly. Psalms 24 and 1 Corinthians 10, they proclaim, they say, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. All the stuff, every atom, everything, every cent, every dollar, all the possessions, it's all his. It doesn't say the earth is the Lord's, some of the stuff is his, some of it's yours. It says the earth is the Lord's, all of it's his. But And yet at the same time, James 1 tells us this, that God is a good and gracious father and that every good and perfect gift we have from him, it, everything good we have, it comes as a gift from him. 
So in other words, God's the true owner of everything, and everything you have is a good and gracious gift from him, not something you earn, not something you deserve, not something you are owed. He doesn't owe you anything. And when you remember that you are not the owner of anything that you have, but a gracious recipient of a good gift from God, that all that you have is from him, and at the same time you express your gratitude for all that he has given you that you do not deserve, what's going to happen is it's going to free your heart up from the tyranny that money and possessions have over it. Instead of discontentment over all that you do not have, that practice is going to start increasing over time to build in you a, like just a, a glad contentedness in what Jesus has given you. You see, you do not deserve anything, and he has been radically gracious to you already. So practice gratitude, practice thanksgiving, fosters an attitude of contentedness in your heart. But secondly, choose to regularly and sacrificially practice generosity. So not just gratitude, but practice regular and sacrificial generosity. We'll talk about this more next week, but being generous with your money and your stuff is one of the best ways to loosen its grip on your heart. It's one of the best ways to do it. One pastor put it this way. He said, every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual dethroning of money. See, when Mary breaks the jar of expensive perfume, her whole life savings, when she breaks that jar and pours it out on Jesus' feet, she's not just showing where her heart is at. She's not just revealing the th that she loves him more than she loves anything else. She is deepening her love for him because she is loosening her grip on all the other stuff that, that vies for her affections and devotion. Same is true of Zacchaeus, tax collector, immensely wealthy. He meets Jesus, comes to faith in him, and in response not only agrees to give half of everything he has to the poor, but to pay back fourfold any money he's stolen from people. Why? Well, one, he's just responding to the, the gift that Jesus has given. He was like, I was spiritually bankrupt, and you gave me like spiritual life, so I've become spiritually rich because of you, Jesus. So like, I'm giving my money back. Right? But secondly, I think he knew better than most of us how tempting money is to worship, not just one day a week, but every day. And I think he knew that it was going to take him a lifetime to pay that money back. And what he needed was a lifetime to loosen its grip on his heart. You see, practicing regular sacrificial generosity, ongoing, you don't loosen money's grip on your heart by giving it away one time. You do it by a, a rehearsal, a practice of that stuff. It's a continual dethroning of it as a false god in your heart. But last, third, most importantly, I would argue probably by a large margin, so practice generosity, practice gratitude, but lastly, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 says it this way, keep your lives free from the love of money, be content with what you have, because here's the how, here's the why, here's like the, the motivations and the reasoning. He says it this way, never, God has said to you, never will I leave you, and never will I forsake you. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9 reminds us that Jesus proved that was true. 
Paul says it this way, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. See, the way that you harness the power of money is by setting your eyes on the true and better God that your heart really longs for. You see, he is better than money. And he's given you more than money ever could. The comfort he offers is better. The security he brings is safer. The approval he merits on your behalf is more profound and more fulfilling. The power he exercises brings about a better good than your power ever could. You see, money cannot give you the things your heart really longs for. It just keeps demanding more of you. It won't ever die for you. It just demands you die for it. See, but God is different. See, in the person and the work of Jesus, he doesn't demand you die for him. He shows you that he died for you. See, and when that reality keeps coming up again and again in your heart, when that's the truth you keep setting your heart on, it loosens the grip of the false god of money. And you see that he's not, that like serving him and using your money in his ways for his priorities, like that's not just the right thing you're supposed to do. That's the, th- like that's the way to get the thing your heart's really after. The thing you're after, you're trying to use money as a means to get, it's actually him. And money can't buy him because the gospel is free. See, and it's his sacrificial death for us That's what we're remembering. That's what we're celebrating every week when we take communion. And so communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's an opportunity for us to remember his body and his blood that was broken and shed so that you and I might be freed from the tyranny of false gods so that we might really love him with everything. And so if you put your trust in Jesus this morning, or you do for the first time, if he is the God that you worship, then during our time of worship, I want to encourage you, go back and take communion. There's two tables, one on the left and on the right. You can dip the bread in the juice as a reminder of his body broken for you, his blood shed for you so that you might be free. That you might be free to worship him. That you might find life and hope in him. But if you're here this morning, you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're so figuring out what following him means or if that's even something you're ready for yet, I want to encourage you, you are welcome here. And you're welcome at River City and you're welcome in this community. But I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals. He is not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that says, God, you are the thing I really want. You are the one thing my heart really You're the one thing that can rescue. You're the one thing that can satisfy. You are the one thing that saves. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is. And and River City is, and we want to help you know him. Wherever you're at this morning, as we sing, as we take communion, I want to encourage you to talk with God. Some of you are here this morning, and for the first time, what you are starting to realize is that even though your budget's in great shape, your heart's out of whack. And while you think you're in control of your money, 
The truth is, is that your money is in control of you. And the greatest savers in the history of the world can still be ruled by the idol of money. See, maybe some of you are here this morning and you're realizing that you love money because it's a great way to get what you want. Or you love money because you think it'll satisfy. It's the means to a life of pleasure. It's the good stuff. Maybe it's your security. See, but all that stuff is a lie. And when we look to money to be those things for us, not only does it never provide, but it just like, it ruins our hearts. James tells us that it leads people into temptation and decay, that it rots your soul away. You see, and the good news of the gospel calls us to be a people who are not ruled by our money, but to be a people who turn it into a servant of the one king who really rules us. That it might be a tool we use to deepen our love for him, not to divert it away from him. And so my heart and my prayer for you and for me, for all of us, as we spend the next few weeks talking about this together, is that we might be increasingly characterized by being a people who do not store up treasures on earth, who don't use our money in selfish, greedy, here and now focused ways, but who instead are characterized increasingly by storing up treasure in heaven, by using it for the good of others and the glory of God. We'll talk about how to do that in the coming weeks. But the reality is, is that where we put our treasure, what we do with it, how we use it, changes your heart. Philosopher Francis Bacon, he once said, money makes a terrible master, but a great servant. So let us be a people who makes money a servant, who are not mastered by it, but who use it as a tool, as a servant to deepen our love for Jesus, as we remember the gospel, as we practice gratitude, and as we choose sacrificial generosity every day. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful for you. And we are thankful this morning that the good news of the gospel doesn't come to us as we think about money with guilt and shame and duty and obligation, but it comes to us with a proclamation of life and freedom. It shines light on the false gods that we worship. And it calls us to see our money not as a god to worship, but as a tool to use, as a means to deepen our love and devotion to you. We recognize, Jesus, how easily we are all tempted to allow it to be something that doesn't deepen our love for you, but that diverts it away from you. And we need you by your spirit, Lord Jesus, to give our hearts eyes to see those realities. And as we enjoy the good news of the gospel, as we remember and celebrate all you've given to us, might we be a people who use our money as a tool to love you and to love others and bring you glory, we pray. Amen.